Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ted Cupper. And today we're asking the question, what is transhumanism? And you might notice that um, my voice sounds a little bit uh, further away and more squashed uh, down than John's, and that's because I'm calling into the show from an undisclosed location in the wilds of California where I've sequestered myself um, with uh, little other than internet access. So I'm going to be doing the podcast um, the next few weeks uh, basically as if I were a guest. And this is um, something that uh, John and I are doing uh, so that we can test uh, eventually having guests on the show who aren't us. Um, yeah, fancy uh, that. Other voices on this podcast. Exactly. So this is a little bit of a preview of what it's going to be like when hopefully in um, about three or four weeks you start to see uh, some Review the Future podcasts that, uh, that have some other people um, bringing their perspective uh, in. But for right now, let's jump right into the topic for the week, which is what is transhumanism? This is a term that gets bandied around a lot, and um, it's got kind of an interesting history. So I think maybe we should discuss um, uh, it in depth. And first, you know, the standard disclaimer, um, as with all, you know, intellectual movements, thinking on this issue is not unified. Um, there's some disagreement within the movement. So we're going to be generalizing about things that most transhumanists believe, but certainly things we say may not be true of all transhumanists. Uh, right, right. So uh, let's just give a definition. Uh, this one just comes straight from Wikipedia, and it's pretty similar to most of the definitions you're going to find out there. So it's just as good a place to start as any, uh, which says that transhumanism is an international, cultural, and intellectual movement with an eventual goal of fundamentally transforming the human condition by developing and making widely available technologies to greatly enhance human intellectual, physical, and psychological capacities. Uh, and actually, that last part, intellectual, physical, psychological, has been summarized by David Pierce. Uh, he actually made a pretty good video on what is transhumanism, where the method he devises for sort of summarizing it more quickly is that transhumanism is about what he calls the three supers, or super longevity, that's sort of the physical part, uh, super intelligence, that's the intellectual, and super well-being, and that's the psychological component. So these are some of the goals, uh, but I think you know transhumanism isn't just about these sort of moonshot goals, uh, it's also sort of about the philosophy that, that drives a pursuit of these things. There's a pretty good summary of a lot of the ideas called the Transhumanist Declaration that a lot of people have signed on to, and that's something we'll include a link to. But for now, I think, you know, sort of the, the notion that as humans, we should be striving to improve our natural condition, you know, using whatever technology available to us is, I think, you know, the core idea of transhumanism. Does that sound right to you, Ted? Yeah, that sounds right to me. I think, yeah, it's it's all about uh, improving people. And one of the things I've seen is um, that it has a particular focus on improving people at the individual level, like individual bodies, individual minds. And yeah, that's. I think that that really does sum it up. So I think we should talk about you know where this term comes from and why it came to be used to mean this sort of set of um, of enhancements that uh, that certain people are are going after. So. I actually want to go way back to a little bit before the term itself to just sort of what I think its philosophical roots are. Okay. Uh, and 
people like Max Moore uh, have pointed out that, you know, you can look at transhumanism as transhumanism, or you can look at it as trans-humanism, right? And I think it's fair to say... Right, right. Like the, the intellectual roots of this thing are in classical Enlightenment era humanism. Exactly, yeah. And I think that that, uh, although it certainly goes well beyond any standard, you know, Enlightenment humanism type beliefs... I think you can you can root it in that because it's got this belief in the you know possibility and desirability of, of progress and that progress is supposed to be a result of human creativity and human ingenuity uh, and not coming from some higher power the the notion that we can shape uh, our future and improve our future and get better over time um, I mean these are all ideas that came out of the Enlightenment and out of humanism and I think transhumanism totally embraces that general perspective um, and there's actually some you know, Enlightenment thinkers going pretty far back that say things that are pretty transhumanist sounding. I found some quotes in particular going back to 1795 from the Marquis de Condorcet. He speculates about what might come of new discoveries in the sciences and the arts. Talks about, you know, some of the same ideas. He says, real improvement of our faculties, moral, intellectual, and physical, possibly by the improvement of our natural organization itself. So he talks about actually changing nature. And he even speculates about a period that may one day arrive when death will be defeated and be nothing more than uh, the effect of extraordinary accidents. So, you know, a lot of these ideas, you know, these people wouldn't have called themselves transhumanists, but a lot of these ideas do, I think, go back to that Enlightenment period when people were thinking about progress in this particular way. Right. And I think a crucial difference to point out at this moment is that, you know, they're saying these are things that may be within the realm of possibility uh, in the far future, but they're not speculating um, in any plausible or realistic way about how they might be achieved. Um, they're basically just saying, well, we see that, you know, science and ingenuity can create real progress in the world. So it's not clear to us that there's a future limit to that, you know, which I think is like a foundational premise of, a, of, of accepting a transhumanist worldview, but it's not it's not 100% of the way there. Right. And I think the idea of actually going past human, too, uh, separates right, right. it. So do you want to talk about when the term first got, got... Sure. Okay. So it seems the first use of the term that I was able to find uh, corroborated by others is this biologist, Julian Huxley, who in 1957 actually seems to have coined the term transhumanism uh, in an article that he was writing, uh, which... Uh, has a very similar, actually, point of view to the to the one we just uh, quoted from, uh, where, where he's talking about Hobbes, and he's basically saying, you know, uh, up until now, uh, life has been the you know the Hobbesian, nasty brutish in short, uh, but that from the point he's writing that in 1957, we can now imagine he supposes uh, that those present limitations, as he calls them, um, can be surmounted, and that the human species can. Uh, and here I'll quote from him. Uh, now, if it wishes, transcend itself, not just sporadically an individual here in one way, an individual, individual there in another way, but in its entirety as humanity. So that's the kind of definitional uh, first use of the term, uh, the idea that we're going to, as a species, transcend natural humanity uh, through the application of, of uh, science and technology and become some other thing. So that's, I think, the first time that it got used. But at that time, it was still far from being an intellectual movement. And in, you know, in 1957, 
there's, you know, they're just inventing the transistor over at uh, Bell Labs. It's a very different world than uh, the one we're in now. So I think there's still like kind of an interesting development that then continued through the 60s and 70s and uh, really grew in the 1980s. Should we just like quickly go over that? Yeah, let's, we're just going to do a very quick survey history of sort of some of the, the figures and, and major things that happened. So Yeah, like the, the first major academic to talk about this in a kind of academic setting was um, at the New School, there was a professor in the 60s who renamed himself FM2030 uh, in the hopes that he would live to see his 100th birthday uh, in the year 2030. And he came at this from a very 1960s-y uh, sort of almost like pseudo-spiritualist point of view, but he did, uh, like if you've read the work of McLuhan or uh, something like that, you'll be pretty familiar with the mode in which this guy uh, lectured. But um, he was super influential, and he really started to uh, bring together a group of people who wanted to think about um, the philosophy of what science was doing to us at that time. So, you know, the philosophy behind technology extending the self or encroaching on the self, like, you know, this yielding, wielding thing that we talked about in a previous podcast, and the philosophy behind, um, you know, things like cryonics and uh, cybernetics and, you know, some of the big questions that come up when you think about, you know, technologically altering human bodies. And he was uh, relatively, uh, uh, you know, something of a pioneer in this field. But by the 80s, by 20 years later, there were a number of people who are emerging both in the hard sciences and in the uh, philosophical side of academia that were um, starting to push his ideas and accept his ideas and, uh, and as a result uh, get into the sort of transhumanism emerging movement. A big milestone in the 80s was when Eric Drexler right. uh, at MIT published Engines of Creation, which was the first really plausible outline for how you might realistically achieve some of the greatest scientific dreams that we've had for all of humanity. You know, things like being able to make one piece of matter into another, you know, the sort of alchemist dream, uh, longevity, uh, you know, repairing the body from within with tiny robots, uh, material science, making things that are light and strong. All the kinds of things that, you know, that have been fundamental human pursuits for so long, uh, he really did in the mid-80s sort of by outlining what nanotechnology could potentially achieve based on what we knew at the time about molecular chemistry and uh, physics. It really opens up the door uh, to not just a uh, philosophical, theoretical, what if science eventually solves these problems sort of question, but a real plausible, like, when science solves these problems, it's likely to solve them in this way, and that's likely to lead to the following complications, yeah. um, which I think allowed people to get a lot more specific and a lot more uh, real about, about talking about these things. Uh, you mentioned Max Moore a minute ago. People might not know who he is. He is um, uh, an academic who, while, uh, while at USC in the 80s, uh, uh, started with another guy named Tom Morrow. Obviously, these guys made up or <laughs> augmented their names. Um, they started a magazine called Extropy Magazine. Extropy is... Um, yeah, this is a fun term to, to talk about. It's formulated as sort of an antonym of, of entropy, the notion that the universe tends towards disorder. So Extropy is the notion that uh, we might progress towards greater and greater order and greater organization. And again, it's this notion of progress, but in a bit more abstract fashion, I think even... Right, in- it's sort of defining progress in a way as being you know, increasing order 
which is sort of, I, I guess, one way to look at what humans and, and intelligent beings in general do. Um, that's, you know, the, the universe, the dumb universe tends toward entropy and uh, the intelligences in it sort of clean it up and order it. But uh, so at this time, by, by the late 80s, um, both FM2030 and uh, uh, Natasha Vitamore, who is um, both uh, Max Moore's wife and also uh, a known transhumanist and um, experimental filmmaker in her own right, were teaching at UCLA. So um, also at that time, uh, the first major kind of money where their mouth is company to get started on transhumanist principles uh, started up also in Southern California, this company, Alcor Cryonics. And right now, Max Moore is actually the CEO of Alcor. So this group of people were, um, were involved, although he was not the founder. He, he, he joined the organization after it started. And I think it became something of like a salon or a clearinghouse or sort of a gathering place for people who were interested in these ideas. And that, I think, led to the adoption of these ideas by some of the futurists that we've talked about uh, already in this podcast um, who are just basically starting their futurist practices uh, from whatever they used to do before. Uh, in the 80s, people like Hans Moravec and Ray Kurzweil adopted the term or at least addressed the term as being something similar to what they were talking about as they started to, you know, Ray Kurzweil had his first major futurist work in the late 80s, the Age of Intelligent Machines, and it mentions uh, the movement there. And uh, uh, he's already, I think, at that point, quoting from uh, earlier Moravec stuff. So I think by the end of the 80s, the early 90s, uh, we see that um, transhumanism is basically coalesced as a concept. And you've got people who've pretty articulately put out not just the philosophical underpinnings of the movement, but also some of the plausible explanations for how uh, science and technology might accomplish the goals that the movement discusses, which I think is a kind of key uh, element because at that point it can stop being an abstract academic thing that only maybe appeals to people in the ivory tower and starts to be something that, you know, people might be interested if they're going to run a business or uh, just going to plan their life or something like that, something that has more general applicability. Right, which maybe that's that's a good transition to kind of where I want to go next, which is that, you know, we've defined transhumanism sort of abstractly as, you know, trying to, you know, transcend human limitations, improve ourselves, improve our condition with technology. And we've talked about some of these, you know, very, you know, far-reaching goals like defeating death or obtaining superintelligence or improving our well-being. But I think that the underlying philosophy it implies a lot of other what I guess would be corollary beliefs and things that I think would, you know, influence policy or how you might live your life today. Uh, so I just wanted to go through some of the things that, you know, while they might not be part of the definition of transhumanism... To me, transhumanism seems to imply these things. Uh, and, you know, the first thing on my list is sort of a commitment to, to rationalism and to the use of human reason and, and possibly the improvement of human reason. Um, I think you find a lot of people in the transhumanist community that are very interested in, say, uh, overcoming their own uh, cognitive biases. Right. That's uh, almost become something that's in some ways like hijacked the transhumanist movement and it's become like a priority number one for certain influential thinkers, uh, such as uh, Yudkowsky. Um, sure, yeah. If you in go, the movement. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, some of these communities like Less Wrong, you know, there's a lot of discussion of, of how to improve human thinking. And I think, 
you know, that just dovetails very nicely with the whole endeavor, you know, of trying to create progress through our own ingenuity. And, you know, while we can't maybe achieve super intelligence now via, you know, brain modification, we can perhaps improve our intelligence through these slightly clunkier methods of, you know, trying to at least become self-aware of the, you know, systematic mistakes that humans make and thinking critically and, you know, developing those skills, you know, being aware of logical fallacies Sure, well, taking a scientific approach to looking at the flaws in our own thinking, right? And, you know, as we, through experimental results, whether it's behavioral psychology or behavioral economics or whatever the discipline of the results are, we can find ways to apply those results and maybe come up with better outcomes, you know, even if we're not, uh, like you said, able to, you know, literally change our brains at this point or something like that. And uh, uh, this wasn't originally on my list, but I actually think that uh, if you're trying to improve your brain, I, I think, you know, transhumanism also implies, I guess, trying to improve your body. So it would it would imply, you know... Oh, yeah. Possibly, uh, you know, looking after your diet, taking advantage of whatever the the best you know, medical information is that's out there to try to keep yourself healthy for as long as possible. So again, these are all like implications of transhumanism that would affect you today and not in some far future. Right. Uh, and that's one of the things that uh, Natasha Vitamore has been, I think, well known for is talking a lot about, you know, building your body, basically building a transhuman body, sort of starting that process now by, you know, Again, it's the same idea as with the rationality, following best practices in anticipation of better technology in the future. Yeah, and I, I think that connects to like sort of a philosophical corollary of like sort of personal choice. I think, you know, in general, and actually uh, the transhumanist declaration, um, which is I mentioned earlier, which is signed off on by a lot of these people that we're mentioning, specifically mentions we favor allowing individuals wide personal choice over how they enable their lives. You know, I don't know that that's a completely universal belief among all transhumanists, but it, you know, I think there's a strong implication that the goal here is to is to liberate people to to transform themselves and their bodies and to have that control, um, particularly over their bodies, like the sort of idea of morphological freedom. You know, that you can you can determine what happens with your body, and I think you know that has implications to all kinds of other current movements. You know, whether it's like the feminist movement and. Uh, Issues, Absolutely. issues about birth control or, you know, uh, the transgender community uh, or just how you feel about the war on drugs. You know, I mean, all these things intersect with this idea of, you Sure, know, all of those things intersect with it. Racism intersects with it. Sure. Um, I mean, there are so many parts of our society now where you either are denied morphological freedom because of technological limitations and architecture of the world or because of societal rules, which may or may not be uh, outdated um, in some cases. Uh, so I think it's it's typical for transhumanists, although again, I, I wouldn't speak for everyone, uh, to be um, maybe what you might call like individual freedom maximizers on on these issues of body, where you know if we have the ability technologically to change your gender, uh, not just in a visible way, but in a in a deep genetic way that um, people should have that choice. If we have the ability to change your race, people should have that choice. You know, that's, um, you have to be, I think, a secular humanist at your core to consider those things good ideas. You know, you, ha you have to have accepted that things are the way they are because of uh, random chance and not because of some design, I think, for that to make sense to you. 
Right, right. Well, there's one more thing I want to say about this issue of personal choice, which is uh, like the difference between enhancement and I guess just sort of body maintenance. You know, let's talk about uh, cognitive enhancement, right? Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of college students use Adderall to attempt to improve their performance on tests, right? That's not a legal usage of the drug, and it's not one that society is completely comfortable talking about. It's somewhat frowned upon. Uh, but philosophically, that's something that a, you know, a transhumanist probably wouldn't object to because that's, you know, exercising free control over the use of technology to alter one's own body. Right. Um, Like my only objection to that would be, I don't, I haven't seen convincing scientific evidence that it works very well. But other sure. than that, I have no other objection to it. I certainly have no moral objection to There's it. There's no principled ob- objection, and it's just, you know, that's, like, maybe the the best example of the technology that we have now. Yeah, whether or not right. it works is a separate issue. A, a, more, a more effective nootropic that can be shown to increase your performance, I would basically be completely behind. Right. So I think, you know, it, it, it overlaps with that issue in, in medicine of, like, when are we just fixing someone who's broken and when are we enabling someone to creatively determine their destiny? And also, I, you know, that also turns into issues of public policy in terms of like healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like as, you know, when are people to be afforded care as, you know, almost a human right? So um, basically what you're saying is like, where, where does, where is that line between healing someone, right? Uh, of their illness and, or fixing them of their injury uh, versus um, enhancing them beyond what they could ever naturally uh, achieve, even at a healthy state, right? Um, and where does that line lie? And it seems like you know society will have to decide uh, at what point do we consider it, you know, a right or at least um, a right if you've paid up on your premiums or whatever. And at what point do they consider it, you know, an extra service? Uh, for example, as like an example to talk about this, we read a book by uh, David Marusek, right, where they have um, rejuvenation clinics that are extremely expensive, but then they also have free traditional health care. Now, that may or may not be a plausible future. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, actually. But that's one way of drawing that line. Like, the old ways that didn't really work all that well, the traditional medicine that would cure your cold or something like that, um, are provided as a right but the new technology that can reduce your physical age and basically um, you know, give you a, just a higher likelihood of not having diseases for the next however long, um, that is considered like an extra add-on service that people are expected to, to be rich in that society and pay for. Um, now, right. that's just one author's view of how it might work out in a world. You know, I almost feel like the opposite might be true, that, like... <laughs> as the nano treatments get better and cheaper, the old, expensive, ineffective treatments will become something that you'll have to particularly want to get. But you know, who knows? It, there is, there is, I think, a big question that you're bringing up here, which is like, what are people owed? Um, if it's possible technologically to give people eternal life through, um, you know, repair of their body's natural uh, decay. Um, in the Aubrey de Grey uh, formulation of the idea, then is it our responsibility to uh, provide that to uh, as many people as we can possibly afford to provide it to? Um, 
it seems to me consistent with the transhumanist worldview that um, that would be the case, and that the only exception would be if someone chose not to have the treatments, they should have the choice to refuse them, because I think that goes back to this control over your own body. Nobody wants to enforce a transhumanist future on everyone. Uh, those who wish to die off should be allowed to do so. Uh, but it seems to me like if we can do it, and it's not you know prohibitively expensive to do so, uh, it, it is our, our moral obligation to um, provide any individual with as much life as, as they want. Yeah, and I think this goes beyond just the core issue of longevity too. It's um, that's true. I, I, I'm just I'm just using it as one sort yeah, of yeah. example. But like, but for right, it generalizes. But for example, like what's selective and cosmetic, and what is you know necessary uh, in terms of who foots the bill in particular. I mean, that's starting to deviate into policy. But you know, if we have this principle that uh, people should be able to steer their own destiny for their own body. Uh, you know, let's say someone wants to transform their gender and they're feeling great psychological distress uh, at being born the wrong gender. Uh, you know, is that a medical procedure that feels, you know, mandatory and necessary and something that society uh, would want to fund the same way that we fund other, you know, important emergency uh, medical procedures, or right. or is that more of a cosmetic? Does or is that it more like a breast augmentation or something? Yeah, which is typically not covered, and you know, um, there's a ton of complicated issues that are tied up in that because you're also dealing with a, you know, particularly if you're talking about someone who's gender dysmorphic, you're talking about a disadvantaged group of people who have you know all kinds of prejudice and things that they're dealing with. Um, on top of this question of, you know, healthcare discrimination, basically. Um, and so it do, there's, you know, there's a movement and a history involved there where you, you can't separate it from that. It's going to feel like a slight, whether or not it is, to the people inside that movement, because they're getting slighted all the time by mainstream society, right. basically. Um, it's going to look like one more thing, you know, and, and I think that has to be taken into consideration when you think about that. You know, my hesitation about it is, again, not because of any feeling that um, somebody who wants to get that done shouldn't be able to, but I have reservations about how well our current technology works. And as, a, as, as that technology gets better and the results of it get safer and more predictable and more, um, for lack of a better word, complete, my support for it as a right just grows and grows. You know, um, to the point where if you can literally send nanobots into somebody's cells and make the X's into Y's or vice versa, as well as, you know, a lab growing all the missing organs from their genetic material and then uh, implanting them in a way that's, uh, that's safe, um, that seems to me like a complete technological solution of this societal problem of gender dysmorphia and... I see no reason why it shouldn't be afforded to anyone who wants it, you know? Right, right. Um, Yeah, I mean, a lot of the reason... But I think there's a lot of gray area between here and there, and that's, you know, that's why I I personally have reservations, nothing to do with, you know, um, conservatism or wanting to preserve traditional genders or anything like that. Right. I I mean, I think, yeah, where the transhumanists would would all agree is that uh, none of these things are to be prohibited or in any way... Uh, morally wrong. They're all to be encouraged. It's just a matter of the efficacy of the technology and the limited resources that we have to 
Right. Uh, it has to do with how well does it work and how cheap is it, basically. Yeah, th- these are the issues yeah. that... But uh, where transhumanists would agree is that all this stuff should be available given available resources and technology to to make it possible. Right. Um, now, I think another thing to discuss that I feel like is a corollary of being a transhumanist is sort of this responsibility for shaping our future, right? I mean, I think there are people you will find online that embrace some of these philosophies that have sort of a notion of inevitability or perhaps a unjustified uh, optimism. But I don't think that that could be laid at the doorstep of transhumanism in general. I think transhumanists usually understand that, you know, this is humans that are creating their own destiny and that we're responsible for shaping our future and that some measure of proactiveness in shaping this world that we want is absolutely necessary and that there are risks as well that we need to avoid. Um, right, right. And the, the transhumanist declaration, again, that I referred to earlier, um, you know, makes this like number three on the list. You know, we recognize that humanity faces serious risks, especially from the misuse of new technologies. So I think uh, while it is sort of an optimistic philosophy in some senses in that it's about progress and it's about possibility, I think it also it involves a respect for possible bad outcomes since it, you know, the assumption is that we're in the driver's seat here, right? There is no inevitability and things right. can go wonderfully right, uh, right, but they also can go wrong. Yeah. And I mean, a, a large part of transhumanism is recognizing the awesome power that people already yield, right? Um, we already, for example, have the ability to destroy our world if our society has decided we wanted to. It wouldn't take that many people to agree to uh, nuke the world until no humans could survive in it. Um we choose not to do that, and so far, and that's uh, I think hopeful. But absolutely, I mean, among well-known transhumanists, you'll find some of the very first people who are seriously concerned uh, with avoiding existential risk—the kinds of risks that could truly wipe us out. That you know, other than nuclear death, nu- nuclear uh, winter is the only current uh, technology we have for destroying our entire world. But um, we're we're rapidly advancing in our technological power. And um, Drexler, right after he published Engines of Creation, uh, was instrumental in helping to found uh, an organization called the Foresight Institute, which I believe was the first really serious, you know, academically credentialed, uh, you know, world-known um, organization to really warn about existential risks. And even Kurzweil, who is, you know, the poster boy for utopianism, um, if you actually read his books, he does completely acknowledge right up front uh, the very real danger of existential risks, and he goes through what he thinks they are. And he, he has a whole rationale for why he thinks you shouldn't dwell on it um, and why he thinks it's important to think of the positive outcomes. And I think, the you know, to me, the most uh, convincing part of that rationale was basically, like, if any of these things happens, there's not going to be any of us around to give a shit about it. So... Even if they are terrible uh, and things we should absolutely avoid, it doesn't really make sense to plan for them. These are truly existential risks. Once you get past a certain point with these things, it's too late. Um, And he then goes on to say the rest of this book is about what happens if we don't kill ourselves and and then is very optimistic after that point. Um, And I think 
you know, it's it's easy to just look at what ha- comes after and say these are utopian ideas. You know, they're not looking at um, all of the problems. But I think when the problems get that big, that they're world-ending, species-ending, possibly even universe-ending problems, then I think the the reactions that these that some of these guys have of uh, focusing on the positive it becomes somewhat justified because, like, like I said, it doesn't make sense to plan for the apocalypse if it's an actual apocalypse, right? Well, but you need to plan for avoiding the apocalypse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, you should plan for avoiding the apocalypse. You should spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the early warning signs of that apocalypse are going to be and monitoring for them. But you don't really need to spend any time worrying about what to do afterward. Um, and I think, you know, there is... Basically, two big camps, I think, in the transhumanist um, world between those who are essentially focused fundamentally on avoiding all of the existential risks so that the good things can flourish, and those who are uh, acknowledging that those are serious problems but um, focused on, on the other things. And, uh, you know, I think that's actually a big split in the community and something that people don't particularly agree on. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone pays lip service, as you said, to the notion that there are risks and rewards to be had in the future with technology, but the tone does vary and does often tend to fall in generally optimistic or pessimistic camps, it seems like, Absolutely. Uh, in terms of where people you know, focus their, their attention. But yeah, I mean, I think we're in charge of the future, I think has to be a belief that people have. And I think, you know, some people might see transhumanists in general as thinking that this future is inevitable. And I think that's a misconception. Um, Right. Right. So another issue that I wanted to bring up uh, that's tends to overlap with transhumanist thought is the issue of respect for other life forms that aren't human. And I think this is a place where it, you know, very sharply diverges from say the humanism of the past, uh, which Mm -hmm. again, really put, you know, you know, proper naturalistic humans in the, in the center of the picture. I think, you know, the very notion of transhuman is sort of implying that, you know, humans are not the last stop on, you know, the evolutionary chain. And whether you look at it as, you know, we're going to become post-human or whether you look at it as like humans themselves are part of this ever-changing process or whether you think humanity or personhood in general is, you know, a, a, a broader concept that's not, you know, rooted in biology at all. You know, however you look at it, I mean, all these different possible transhumanist outlooks strongly suggest that we ought to give some respect to other forms of sentience wherever they might appear, uh, or other life forms even, whether they're sentient or not. And that's sort of looking forward to, you know, artificial intelligences that we might create in the future and, and whether those deserve our respect uh, and also looking, you know, to animals, for example, to... Uh, you mean like here. animal testing or eating meat or something like that? Well, let me... Uh, one of the things, again, from the transhumanist uh, declaration says, this is number seven on the on the list. We advocate the well-being of all sentience, including humans, non-human animals, and any future artificial intellects, modified life forms or other intelligences to which technological and scientific advance may give rise. Now, again, I don't think this is probably a universally held opinion. Right. But uh, it is strongly implied by these transhumanist beliefs. Uh, And respect is such a relative word, too. I mean, you know, (laughs) respecting something can mean not eating it, or it can mean, you know, using the whole buffalo, or, you know, I mean, I think there's, there's a cultural... 
uh, level in which this stuff is is hashed out as well. Um, but it's interesting because uh, it does imply that uh, the fact of something having some intelligence, which obviously you know dogs have some intelligence, and uh, maybe soon someday so will computers, um, is what merits respect rather than um, the fact of being biologically human or even culturally human, raised by humans, that sort of thing, uh, right? Yeah, that there's some other criteria that you know defines what is important in life that isn't based in any like naturalistic concept of you know what it is to be a human, right? So, th- what is that criteria, right? What makes something deserving of respect? Because by adopting transhumanism, we've we've sort of thrown out the uh, the idea that you know deserving of respect means you know having this particular natural organization that is homo sapiens, right? So once we throw that out, it opens the door to like, well, then what is the criteria where, you know, something deserves our respect and fair treatment? And so, you know, I don't, again, I don't think there's like unified opinions about uh, how to resolve that or what those criteria are, but I think it's an issue that overlaps with transhumanism and it's something that, you know, affects people's lives today in, you know, whether it's issues like animal testing or, treatment of animals. I mean, that's probably the biggest one that we deal with now since we don't have, you know, artificially intelligent beings yet. But I think, you know, it's it's an interesting area and it's, you know, definitely a place where transhumanists would have some strong opinions and tend sure. to. Sure. Well, and like, uh, you know, this has come up in a lot of fiction. Um, notably, uh, David Brin writes about like uplifting animals, right? And making them of human intelligence level. And then, you know, that's a great thought experiment for if you're trying to figure out what's the worth of a dolphin's life or something? Well, would it be different if it could talk to you in English and, you know, had somewhat similar experience to you uh, that it could represent or not, you know? Right. Uh, Should we move on to this next? Yeah, so I would say that another sort of belief that's implied by transhumanism is a belief in materialism or physicalism or uh, functionalism, Uh, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, there is no soul uh, the seat of the self is is physical, right? In the in the past on the podcast, we've talked about you know the mind uploading scenario where you scan right. a human mind and you you reinstantiate it, you know, inside a computer, inside some other non biological substrate, and you know this is a concept that transhumanists have embraced, or at least most of them, um, and that implies that you know the mind is a physical thing. It has to have a physical instantiation to exist. Uh, Mm. But at the same time, the self is not tied to any particular physical substrate since it's much more of a sort of a set of relationships or a pattern, right? And that pattern could be instantiated uh, in a totally different non-biological substrate and still be considered a, a person with an identity, and that possibly the same person could even make that transition, say, if you were to gradually replace your biological brain uh, with a non-biological brain. But then that's also where you run into some philosophical disagreements, which we've talked about before on the podcast as well, about whether, you know, if you copy someone, it's the same person or whether it's a set of twins. Right. So, so I don't want to revisit that particular debate, but I, I do think, you know, in general, transhumanism implies materialism. Um, but in this particular way where there has to be material there, but a mind doesn't have to exist, you know, as, you know, wetware, as neurons. Right. Like a brain is a machine and a uh, self, for lack of better te- terminology, is sort of software that runs on that machine. And so if you could figure out 
a compatible machine emulation, you can run that software elsewhere and you'll still achieve something like a being or whatever, a, a self, a person. Um, that seems to be the a, a basic underlying philosophical uh, viewpoint that most, if not all, transhumanists sort of have to have, basically. Sure. Yeah, that seems uh, right. Um, so, you know, that, those are some of the beliefs, I think, that, uh, that transhumanists have. And um, we've touched on some of the misconceptions already, but I want to kind of go through them. Um, these are things that people sometimes think of transhumanists uh, that uh, are not necessarily true, at least of, of most transhumanists. So one is that transhumanists are not necessarily like aiming for, you know, some specific end goal that would be defined as perfection um, or utopia. Uh, in fact, Max Moore uh, uses this term extropia to describe, you know, more of a future of continual improvement or a, like a dynamic future, right, rather than a static goal. Sure. And uh, in our utopia episode, we actually kind of arrived at the same conclusion. I don't think at the time I knew this term extropia, but we were discussed all the ways in which actually if you spin things out nobody's vision of utopia could ever really be static anyways i mean no utopia that we would actually want would be sort of stuck in a fixed mode right so it makes a lot of sense that you know what transhumanism is actually about is about just continual improvement and sort of always looking ahead to see how we can be better it's not necessarily something that like oh one day we've accomplished this all the transhumanist goals are met uh, I guess we can rest now, right? So I think that that's a you know a common misconception. Um, I already sort of mentioned this one briefly, but transhumanism is not about specific predictions. Um, even though people like Kurzweil make very specific predictions, um, it's you know transhumanists would accept that you know the future is undetermined and there's many paths to achieve these goals, and you know maybe some of these things will happen by. 2030 and maybe some of them won't happen until 2100 maybe some of them will never happen if we screw things up so transhumanism is not necessarily about inevitability and it's also not fixed on any particular political or technological means i mean we mentioned drexler and the the notion of nanotechnology and there's other technologies that transhumanists have embraced uh, sure. because they, they just because they seem plausible not because they prefer them in a philosophical sense right they help paint a plausible picture, but I think, you know, a transhumanist would take any technological means, including, you know, means that haven't been invented yet or even conceived of to get to the end result. They're not committed to any particular technology and not committed to any particular political ideology either. Now, I think if you had to break down the transhumanist community, it skews pretty libertarian because of this emphasis on sort of personal choice uh, but I think, you know, there's also sort of a, a techno-progressive wing. This is a term that uh, James Hughes at the IET uses a lot. I don't know who actually coined it initially. Those tend to seem to be like the two major like political ideologies that you see right. among transhumanists are sort of like, those are actually probably the two main political ideologies that you see among nerds on the internet in general <laughs> that are like yeah, techno-savvy. Yeah, I mean, to, some, to some extent, this is just the normal left-right debate being brought into um sharper relief and I think a closer adherence to principles just because that's the nature of sure. internet discourse and nerdery. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think the roots of the movement in uh, academia have a lot to do with the emergence of a sort of techno-progressive, like left-wing, uh, social justice, uh, uh, you know, gender studies, um, 
version of this. And then, you know, the vast uh, entrepreneurial and um, uh, internet crank uh, <laughs> side of things uh, tends toward the more like libertarian viewpoint. But um, uh, not that either of those are, are hard and fast categories, of course. Um, there's, I'm sure, lots of bleed. But uh, I think, you know, the, it seems to me like Transhumanism, one thing it will not do is settle the old left-right debate. It's going to continue, there's going to continue to be a question of where individual versus societal goals conflict, who should win. And there's going to continue to be a question of uh, how much should a, uh, you know, communally agreed upon governing body intrude in uh, all of our various affairs. And, I, you know, I, I don't see us becoming some you know, uh, as a species, something a bit more uh, intelligent, more long-lived, and more um, and and more healthy. Um, you know, I don't see those things eliminating the issue of putting the group versus the individual, uh, or putting um, you know society's obligation to uh, help those uh, worse off versus society's obligation to allow and encourage success. Um, you know, we're going to continue to have, those are complicated arguments that don't have single right answers and that, you know, end up getting played out over and over as we, as we make the complex societal choices, uh, that, that already our society is so complex it needs to make all the time. And you almost imagine that a transhuman society would, if anything, just have more complexity of that type. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. It does not free us from, uh, these old debates. Uh, you know, transhumanism is a, is a bigger idea than any particular means for accomplishing a goal. And so, you know, there's can be endless political discussions about how to realize these goals. Right. Um, I mean, just as a really simple example, you could have like a NASA style administration who's, you know, is government funded and whose job it is to, uh, you know, create the first artificial human, let's say. Um, or you could, you know, say, well, that's uh, not a good way to do it. Um, let's instead just, you know, unleash a lot of innovators uh, independently to um, go after this goal and, right. uh, and uh, reward it with success in the market. And it's not clear, you know, from a transhumanist philosophical perspective, which of those would be better. The transhumanist would probably say, well, whichever one works. Uh, you know, to, to the extent that they're non-ideological, I guess. Right. Well, and I, you know, things like that we talked about earlier, like I think, you know, all transhumanists would probably defend uh, morphological freedom, but a techno-progressive transhumanist might be more willing to foot the bill uh, to right. actually enable that freedom in a positive right. fashion rather than just not prohibiting it. Or a techno-progressive might make the argument that if uh, if a particular morphological freedom affects a historically disadvantaged group, they should be you know, more likely to receive assistance or to receive, you know, uh, like, for example, they might say, you know, sex reassignment, um, nano-treatments are covered, but, uh, you know, general longevity treatments that everybody's going to need maybe aren't or something. I don't know. That's just uh, off the top of my head example, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I, I do. Um, okay. So another misconception that I'm just going to breeze over really quickly, uh, is that, you know, transhumanists, you know, either hate their bodies or, uh, because, you know, there's a lot of talk of sort of shedding your human body and, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of criticism of what nature's done and the sort of flawed, uh, package that evolution has put together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just because transhumanists are aware of the flaws and pointing them out does not necessarily mean that they, you know have actual loathing for their physical self. 
Uh, and I think also another misconception is that uh, transhumanism is sort of motivated by, you know, a fear of death. I think that's something that's used uh, to sort of denigrate the movement in general at times to say, oh, you just, this is just a bunch of people who don't want to die. Um, and well, I think obviously that's part of it, but I think... Um, yeah, I think everybody fears death. I mean, come on, uh, including I'm probably all transhumanists, but also everybody who's not transhuman, right? I mean, you, you have to be uh, unaware or, or highly irrational not to fear death. Uh, at the very least, even if you're very religious, it's a, it's a major transition. <laughs> it's like, you know, going to college or moving to a new city. At the very least, you should fear it a little. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think there's a difference between fearing death and, and believing that death is something to be avoided. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, certainly it's easy to fear death and I'm, and I'm sure a lot of transhumanists and non-transhumanists do, but I think that maybe it's just that the term fear implies a kind of irrationality behind the movement. I think it's right, right. Well, it's not simply like we fear death and therefore we pledge to abolish it. I mean, there is, I think a legitimate plausible scientific basis for the modern instantiation of this movement. Um, so, you know, we're not just saying, Oh, Based on nothing, uh, we think that this um, will be possible in the future. We're saying based on what's possible now versus what was possible in our past, we appear to be on a, on a path toward it. Sure. So we're going to close by just kind of discussing, um, you know, is transhumanism the best term for this and what are some other terms out there? We've already mentioned uh, extropy and extropianism which I think is sort of a fun abstract concept, but it doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue that well, and I don't think it's a term that I would necessarily adopt. Another term that we should talk about uh, that we haven't discussed yet uh, that overlaps a lot is singularitarianism, uh, right. which is, I think, a totally separate concept um, because it puts singularity right in the, in the name, and it implies thinking about you know the superintelligence part of the equation, uh, and less so the other two, the super longevity or the super well-being. Right. So, with the with the ex, uh, the argument being there that those other two are sort of um, subsidiary. Once we achieve the super intelligence, um, super intelligence can be directed at the problems of longevity and well-being, and it will ostensibly, if it's truly super intelligence, do a very good job. Uh, but yeah, it seems like that is the focus of singularity. It's not just the fact that humanity as a whole will transcend. It's the idea that one non-human intelligence, at least, will show up. And beyond that moment, you know, there's this event horizon-like failure to be able to predict things, which is, I think, a very different point from the point that transhumanists are making. Although they are, you can hold both views. Uh, I think at the same time. Yeah, I think you can you can subscribe to to both labels at the same time, and I think they they're very compatible. Uh, but I don't think one can replace the other. No, no. Uh, I mean, they're they're basically talking about two different things. One's talking about the point at which you can cease to make meaningful predictions. The other one's talking about the general trajectory of humanity as a species. They, those things can totally converge, as we just mentioned, but um, you could also imagine a world where the singularity occurs in a non-human AGI uh, instantiation and no humans are ever transhumanized, uh, and yet we still can't make meaningful predictions because that superintelligence comes on the scene and starts making decisions for us um, in a way that we can't even conceive of. 
Um, but on the other hand, you can also imagine a world where trans, you know, transhumanism comes to fruition. People do become sort of cyborgs, and we never get to such a a crazy uh, foom-like intelligence explosion that uh, that despite increasing our intelligence and increasing our capabilities, we never actually reach a point that's impossible to, to see beyond. Right. I also think that, you know, unlike transhumanism, uh, singularitarianism doesn't imply a set of values. Like, I, I think singularitarianism implies that you've reflected on the possibility of a singularity and that you're aware of it or have considered it. I think that's how Ray Kurzweil defines it in his book. Right. Um, and so just being aware of something or having reflected on it doesn't commit you to any particular positive, prescriptive belief or desire about how the future should be. Whereas I think transhumanism kind of commits you to trying to achieve a specific set of positive outcomes. Right. It is itself a value judgment. It's saying that it's positive to transcend our natural humanity in pursuit of things we think are good. You know, it's, it is basically a value judgment to say you're transhumanist, you know, um, whereas, yeah, I think you're right. A singularitarian can be somebody who just thinks it's inevitable, um, which is, as we mentioned, something that doesn't really make sense for transhumanism. If you really believe humans are in the driver's seat, nothing can be truly inevitable. Okay, so that's probably a good time, yeah. place to wrap gotta, up. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. I got to go, uh, but this was really great, and uh, we look forward to doing a few more like this. And then once we've got all the bugs out of this system, uh, hopefully um, having some of you guys uh, come in and, and guest uh, with us on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed uh, this discussion of transhumanists, and I hope my voice didn't sound too terrible through the uh, through the laptop speaker. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.